0: So I want to begin with a question. Uh, Have you ever said something that was unintentionally offensive? Some of you are like, I do that every single day and uh, I can't stop. It's a bad habit. Now, notice I didn't ask, do you ever say things that are intentionally offensive? Uh, I know that there are many people in that category in this congregation but that's another sermon, so we're not going to talk about that. But if you ever had the experience where you said something, you're like, oh, I didn't mean it that way, and oh, they took it, and oh, ooh, I wish I could take it back, you know? I remember several years ago, one of my most embarrassing moments in life, this was back when Alicia and I were living in Seal Beach. Our kids were pretty young, and we were walking out on the Seal Beach Pier, and we ran into a young couple that we had known from our youth group. And so this was the young kids that were in my youth ministry. They grew up, got married, and they I already had one kid, and I think their kid was about seven or eight months old, and they were out walking on the pier, and they were pushing the stroller, and I saw them. I'm like, hey, what's up? I haven't seen you guys. How are you doing? And I was like, oh, you've got a baby. And then I looked over at her, and she was wearing one of those flowy dresses that sort of looks like you might be pregnant. And I said, oh, I said, are you having another baby? And she looked at me horrified. And then I think Alicia just jammed. No, Um, and, and, and I tried to recover. I was like, no, I mean, you no, no, not, like, of course you're not pregnant now. But at some point, undisclosed point in the future, you surely want to have a second baby. It was horrible. But have you ever had that experience of saying something that was unintentionally offensive? Now, I don't know why that story came to mind and the question came to mind uh, as it regards to the topic that we're going to look at today, because today we're going to be talking about evangelism. And I think for a lot of us, this topic can just feel almost unintentionally offensive. And I think in 2023, you know, there are so many different belief systems out there. And there's a lot of people that you know that are good and honest and reliable people. And maybe some some of them are, are better than, than than many of the Christians you know. And it can feel almost offensive to think like, oh, I need to go out and evangelize them. You know, they're lost and they need to be found. And, 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 and I think in, in, our, in our day, we can almost feel like, look, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad that you believe what you believe, but why do you have to go and try to foist what you believe on other people? I mean, is it really the case that you think everybody else needs to believe the big answers that you give to the most important questions in life? And, and we can almost feel like oh, like it just doesn't feel right. And of course, it's not just that evangelism can sometimes feel a little bit offensive. Uh, I, I think for a lot of us, uh, we can just feel afraid and we can think i don't know what to say i don't know how to say it i don't know how to broach the conversation uh, sometimes we can feel guilt and shame associated this with this because we think you know good christians are those who are evangelistic and they're sharing their faith with other people and you feel like i just never do that i never have opportunities it doesn't seem like anybody i know is interested and we just feel like we're bad christians and then you go to church on a sunday like this and you're talking about evangelism and you're like can i just leave because this topic always makes Makes me feel guilty, you know, like I'm not a good Christian, and so I think there's a lot of tension that we feel with this conversation. We're afraid, we we don't know what to say. It can feel a little bit offensive, but then on the other hand, we know that Jesus has called us to be people who speak the good news to others. You know, one of the last commands Jesus gave to his disciples was to go into all of the world and to preach the gospel to everyone. And, of course, Jesus himself, uh, he, he summed his own mission like this. He said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus was describing the heart of God, he said, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't repent, you know. And then he says this, it is not the healthy, but the sick who need the doctor, And so Jesus himself was all about bringing good news to people who were stuck in bad news. Jesus was all about helping the lost become found. And he invites those who are his followers to participate with him in this mission. But uh, of course, for a lot of us, you know, we feel like, ah, you know, a little bit uneasy about this topic. And then I think some of us, I don't know if you feel like this at all, but I can just sometimes get a little bit numb or I don't know, um... Ambivalent. You know, you can kind of live day by day, and you're watching your Netflix, and you're watching your YouTube clips, and you're shopping on Amazon.com, and you're doing your thing, and you can just kind of, over the long course of time, just kind of become numb to the real spiritual thirst and hunger and needs of people around you. And so, if you're like me, you might need a little bit of inspiration and encouragement when it comes to the topic of evangelism. And so, we've been in this series over the last several weeks in the book of Acts, and we've said, look, the book of Acts gives us, in many ways, a model of what it looks like to be a compelling witness or an evangelist for Jesus. And we've seen different types of evangelism, different ways in which people evangelize. But what we come to today I think is incredibly helpful and very practical because what we're looking at today is what is uh, one of the most interesting and compelling and helpful Examples of personal evangelism we have in the Bible. And it comes to us in the story of of a man whose name is Philip, who engages with an Ethiopian eunuch. And so I wanna invite you to join with me as we enter into this story. So uh, let me just set it in its context. So last week we looked at the stoning of Stephen. And after Stephen was stoned, there was persecution that arose, and Christians who were in Jerusalem scattered to flee from the persecution. And as they went, they began to share with people about Jesus. And so uh, Acts 8 opens with them going to Judea, verses 1 through 3, and then into Samaria, verses 4 through 25. And where we pick up our story now, the gospel is going to begin to go to the ends of the earth. And it begins with this Ethiopian eunuch, and look what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and so he arose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And so let's talk a little bit about this Ethiopian eunuch. So. Um, He's something of a complex picture, because the text tells us that he's an Ethiopian, and in the Greco-Roman imagination, uh, Ethiopian was basically all at the very fringes of the known world. It was literally the ends of the earth, and so this is a man who's from the ends of the earth, and he is a court official. And he holds some position of power and authority. Uh, it says that he manages all of Candace's stuff. And so he's something of the CFO of Ethiopia. And, um, uh, but on the other hand, he is socially marginalized because our text tells us that he was a eunuch. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You say, like, what is a eunuch anyway? And if you look it up, it's clear in the ancient world, a eunuch was a male who had been castrated, and it was common in the first century for servants who worked in the royal court to undergo castration, typically at a young age, maybe sometimes as early as 12 years old, and um, they would lose sexual desire, Uh, they would grow up with smooth skin, and they would become more effeminate over time, and they were really the closest thing to a transgender person in the ancient world. And they did this for court officials because they didn't want these court officials messing with the king's harem or getting into any kind of, and they didn't want them having extended family, that they might have intrigue in the court, and so it was convenient for them to groom leaders in the royal court by, through this brutal and really harsh act of castration. And so this is the man who Philip approaches. He is a court official, and yet he's socially marginalized. And what's fascinating, though, is that this man surely is also spiritually thirsty, because he's making a journey from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem. That is a 1,500-mile journey, and it was over vast expanses of dangerous desert, and you would risk life and limb to take that kind of journey in the ancient world, and there were sandstorms and bandits, and, you know, it was just a long, arduous journey. And you just think, why would anybody way off in Ethiopia take such a long dangerous, risky journey going all the way to Jerusalem. And the answer must be because this Ethiopian eunuch was incredibly spiritually thirsty. And so he has taken a trip to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And... You know, and you wonder, like, well, like, why is this guy coming from some foreign land, coming to Jerusalem to worship at their temple? And, you know, didn't he have religious options in Ethiopia? I mean, weren't there gods? And, yeah, and there were tons of gods. But regardless of the gods that he met in Ethiopia, they were not satiating the spiritual thirst. And he had position, and he had some affluence and means But his affluence and his means and his position were not satiating his spiritual thirst. And so he takes this long journey to Jerusalem. And it appears that he's come to understand something of the God of Israel. There were many uh, people in the pagan world, the Greco-Roman world, who had been intrigued by Judaism. They had a more sophisticated uh, vision of who God was. Uh, they had a more compelling, uh, ethical, you know, moral standards. And so there were many uh, Gentiles who, who converted to Judaism. So this guy, he travels, he wants to go and meet this God in Israel. And so you just think about, think about the anticipation. Uh, you have dreamed of this and planned for this journey for a very long time. And you had thought like, oh, this, this is finally going to satiate my deep spiritual need. I've, this God in Israel, I've heard something, to, there's some shadowy knowledge, and he seems like he can meet my need. And he goes on this journey and he is anticipating getting to the city, and, and from a distance he can already see the temple. It's it, it shown with its bright marbled walls and its gold embroidery. It, it, it just went ablaze in the sun and you could see it as he's approaching and his anticipation is is building and he goes to the temple and he's about ready to enter in so that he can meet this God in Israel and he discovers when he gets there that he is not welcome. You know, in ancient Israel, they knew something that I think a lot of modern Americans probably don't understand, and that's that you can't just saunter into the presence of a holy God any old time you want and think that it'll just be fine. And so in order to enter the presence of God, you had to go through the prescribed rituals and the washings, and there had to be sacrifices made in order to enter into the presence of God. And there were things in their imagination and by the written revealed text of scripture that could prevent you from entering the presence of God temporarily. And so for example, if you had mold in your house, you couldn't enter the presence of God. Some of you are like, I would never be able to go to worship. And if you had touched a dead body, it would temporarily render you unclean. You couldn't enter. If you had an issue of blood and a, an emission of some, some bodily emission of some fluid, you know, like you would be unclean and you couldn't go. It would kind of render you because those things were associated with death and you were entering into the presence of the very God who is the God of life. But there were certain things that would exclude you not just temporarily, but permanently, Like they would permanently exclude you from entering into the presence of God. And one of those things that could permanently exclude you from being in the presence of God is if you were a eunuch. Now, I'm not going to read you the text in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 because it's not one of those nice calendar verses. (laughs) But just trust me. Like he, he, he got there and it was like, you are not welcome here was a big sign. And you're excluded, and 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 you can just imagine. This man is devastated. Like I just took you know fifteen hundred like this journey to get and serious, like I can't like I can't enter the presence of this God. Like, I'm on the social margins in my own society. I have no children I can pass on my inheritance to, and I just wanted to go and find something that would quench my spiritual thirst, and he gets there, and he is not welcome. So he gets back in his chariot, and he begins this long journey back, Ethiopia. Now, all wasn't lost because while he was in Jerusalem, I mean, he was a man of some means, he was able to pick up a copy of the Isaiah scroll. So in the ancient world, you know, they didn't have a a Bible like ours that was all chaptered and versed and wrapped in nice imitation genuine leather covers with your name embroidered in gold. No, they had scrolls and they were expensive. It was expensive to write and copy and all of that. But this guy was able to manage to get his hands on an entire copy of the Isaiah scroll. And on his way home, he is now poring over this scroll. You just imagine him. He's got it open. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as silent reading. It hadn't been invented yet. You know, you would read out loud. And so he's there in his chair. He's reading out loud. And the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And he's reading this out loud, and, and, and you imagine his heart's broken, and he's, and he's reading this. He doesn't really understand what he's reading. But why, why is he reading this section? And I suggest the reason why he's here in Isaiah 53 is because just a couple chapters later in Isaiah 56, there is a specific reference that addressed eunuchs. There's a promise made from God, the God of Israel, to eunuchs, and it is this. It's from Isaiah 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, this guy's like, I'm a foreigner, I want to join myself to the Lord, let him not say the Lord will surely separate me or exclude me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree, you know, I have no uh, family, I have no heritage. And then he goes on, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls. My house is the temple. Within my walls, that's the walls of the temple that he was excluded from. He said, I will give within my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. What in the ancient imagination could be better than having physical descendants? This was your life. This was your future I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And he's reading this, and he's like, how? Like, like I, went to, I was excluded, and, and, and I wasn't welcome, and I feel cut off. And, and, and it seems like this passage contradicts Deuteronomy 23. I thought I was excluded, but here eunuchs can have a, a name, and he's, and he's confused, and he's wondering, and he comes to Isaiah 53. And here he reads about a faithful servant of Yahweh who is suffering, who was cut off and excluded from life itself. And, and he's puzzling over this. He's like, who, who is, I can, relate, I can relate to this guy. Who is he? Who is this guy? And, uh, and, he's, and he's wrestling, with, he's sitting in his chariot wrestling over all this stuff. And then out of this corner of his eye, he, there's a guy running, you know, and he looks over and he says, pardon me, sir, but I see you're reading the Bible. And the eunuch is like, yeah, whoa, whoa, yeah, I am. And, um, and he said, do you understand what you are reading? And the, the eunuch said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then he asked this question that he'd been dying to ask. He said, well, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Who, who is this suffering servant who is cut off Uh, Does he say this about himself, or is he talking about someone else? And from there, he opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, we're not exactly sure what he said, uh, but I I can imagine what that personal individual sermon for this Ethiopian eunuch was like. I, I can imagine Philip saying something like this, listen, I know you're a eunuch, You were not allowed in. You were excluded from the very presence of God. But listen, you're no different than the rest of us. We have all been cut off and excluded from the presence of God. We have all been wandering east of Eden, far away from the presence of God. You're no different from the rest of us. That was just a type, a picture of the human condition. Because of our sin, we are all unclean. We're all unable to enter into the divine, holy presence. But listen to this. Not long ago, in Jerusalem, God himself, the God of Israel, became flesh, and he walked among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And you should have heard him teach. You should have watched the miracles he performed. You should have watched him welcome all of the outcasts at his table. And this one God who exists eternally in three persons, who has lived forever in an unbroken community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son who is eternally included in this unbroken communion with the Father. The eternal Son took a long journey into a far country and he bore our sin and shame and he suffered and was cut off and was excluded. Just like you feel cut off, just like you feel excluded, he was cut off and he was excluded so that all of those who have been cut off and marginalized and excluded can be brought into his family. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here's the good news. It doesn't matter that the temple has excluded you. It doesn't matter that the religious people have not welcomed you. God welcomes you. God will include you. Christ was cast off so that you can be brought in. He was cut off so that you can be welcomed in. And this man is thinking, well, what what must I do? What must I do? He says, nothing. This is a free gift. Surrender your life to Jesus. Entrust yourself to Jesus. Reorient your life around this good news. Receive his free gift. And then go public with this commitment through the waters of baptism. And he hears this. He's like, Well, I want to know God. But look at what he says next. Uh, As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Well, see, you talked about getting baptized. Here's water. What would prevent me from getting baptized? Do you hear the ache in that question? I was prevented from entering into the temple. I'm a eunuch, I'm different. What would prevent me from getting baptized? Is there anything that would prevent me from getting baptized? Can I be welcomed into this family? Can I be forgiven? Are you sure? You know, what about Deuteronomy 23? Are you sure? And then he commands the chariot to stop. He says, oh yeah, I'm sure. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And he's baptized to show that he is now a full covenant member of the covenant family of God, washed and cleansed and fully welcomed in. And no wonder this story ends like this. And They they came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. You know, early Christian legend tells us that the Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia, shared the gospel with the royal court, and Ethiopia becomes one of the first Christian nations in the history of the world, which is just really cool, isn't it? And our story ends there. What I want to do now is I just want to stand back and I want to ask, how does this story encourage you and I as we think maybe with trepidation or fear about the topic of personal evangelism. And I want to suggest that this story can do three things for you and me, if we let it. Number one, this story has the power to enlarge our hearts. You know, we've, we've made this point before, but I'm just going to press it, and quickly though, but press it. You know, do, you, do you see what is happening in this story? You know, scholars point out who study that, that in this story, the gospel now for the very first time is going outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which is basically the land of Israel. And now it's going out beyond that, and this is the first trickle of an entire mighty like waterfall of the ends of the earth coming to know the good news about Jesus. This is the very first one. This is the first story of somebody who, from the ends of the earth, is transformed by the power of the gospel, and note well who it goes to. You know, it doesn't just go barely past the borders of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. It goes way beyond that, to the very ends of the earth, beyond normal society, to a guy who is a eunuch, excluded on the fringes. And it goes to this guy who is way off in the, in the Greco-Roman imagination, like, that's the uncivilized parts of the world. And, and, and this is the first person who is met and changed by the gospel from the ends of the earth. And do you see what this means? There is a wideness to God's mercy. There is a wideness to God's mercy. And listen, it's not just here. God's mercy that reached out to the Ethiopian in the next chapter reaches into the heart of God of a violent religious zealot whose name is Saul, and it transforms him. And after that, a Roman centurion and, the, and his family, and it transforms them. And then a businesswoman who is selling purple garments, and it transforms her. And then a little girl who's oppressed by a demon, and then it transforms her. And then, and then it goes into this pagan city where people are worshiping the goddess Artemis, and it causes this disruptive explosion in the city of Ephesus. And and it, the gospel is changing lives. All kinds of lives. Because there is a wideness to God's mercy. And again, we just have to ask, I've asked it before, but I'm just going to ask it again. Have you made it too narrow? You know, there's a a great prayer from St. Augustine. He says in Confessions, he says, Lord, my heart is too cramped for you to enter. Widen me out. Listen, the mercy and grace of God is not for a category of person. You know, have you heard like in theater or in film, they talk about typecasting, where it's like, well, of course, that's going to be the person that plays that, because that's the role you would expect them to play. And I think sometimes we can do that. We can look at people, we think like, well, that's not a person who's going to be interested in God. He's not, spirit- she's not spiritually thinking. And yet, how do you know? I remember years ago I was sitting in a coffee house and I distinctly remember actually studying this passage and thinking about this truth and I looked up from my books and I looked at this guy who had a bald head and I was just looking at the back of his head and he had two eyeballs tattooed on the back of his head. <laughs> and I just I just had this thought like well of course like that guy's not interested. And it's like the spirit of God said how do you know? Like you're interested? How did you become interested? Was it of some genius category that's in your heart and mind? No, it was not. The grace of God is not for a category of people, person. It is for all people. It is for all humans. And so this passage, no doubt, is inviting us to enlarge our hearts and to not be so sure. Like, how do you know that that person is not, God is not working in their life? But secondly, I I think this passage is not only seeking to enlarge our hearts, but I think also this text is seeking to expose a lie. And it may be the lie that more than any other lie actually prevents us from inviting people to come and explore who Jesus is, and it's this. The lie is that God shows up when I do. Or... God starts pursuing someone when I finally awkwardly breach the faith conversation with them. Listen, that is a lie. God was at work before you got there. God has always been at work before we got here. And the gospel, the gospel is all about God's pursuit of people who are lost. You know, this story, on one level, like, if you just say, what is the story about? It's surely about an Ethiopian spiritual hunger that leads him in a pursuit of God. This is surely about an Ethiopian's pursuit of God. But, you know, more profoundly, this story is about God's pursuit of the Ethiopian eunuch. God spoke to Philip and said, go get that chariot. God spoke to Philip again and said, go up and and, and talk to this guy. Who was at work before Philip the evangelist was? God. Who was at work prior to the Ethiopian eunuch? God. Listen, God is always first. And I just find this encouraging because it is easy for me to believe that my success or failure in witnessing or sharing the gospel or evangelism is dependent upon me. And I, I, can be, I can be deceived into thinking that the success or failure of this church is dependent upon how well we run our programs and the size of our budget and renovations and all, all that stuff's important. It's all about being faithful stewards of what God has, has given to us. But the work of God in individuals' lives has never been dependent upon stuff we're doing. And, you know, you realize, like, I realize this more and more the longer I'm in this work. Like, so often, it's like I run into people, and I've run into some of you, and and I'm like, hey, so how did you wind up here? And somebody's like, well, I don't, like, God told me to go here. Or I saw, and I just felt like I needed to, and something was going on. And you're just like, it's never been dependent upon you anyway, Josh, It's always been dependent upon God. So God is going before us. God is searching hard after people. God is the one who leaves the 99 in pursuit of the one. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. So the story, if we let it, it can enlarge our hearts and it can expose a lie. But thirdly, this story can encourage us to awaken our ears. Specifically to awaken our ears to God and to our neighbor. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? That um, why, like, why did Philip go to this Ethiopian eunuch? You know, was he like... Uh, You know, in church planting, they have something called the homogeneous principle. And what this means is if you want to plant an effective church, you need to find a a group of people who look like you and dress like you and vote like you and are in the same demographic as you, and you will have the most likely chance of success by reaching people who look like you, you know? And, uh, you know, there's, uh, of course, some truth in that. But, you know, this is like, this story turns the homogeneous principle on its head. The Ethiopian eunuch could not be any more different than Philip. And yet Philip is like Philip on, on his best day, probably would not have woken up and been like, you know, I'm gonna go out and like, you know who I'm gonna really go after today? <laughs> I'm gonna look, I'm gonna look for an Ethiopian eunuch who's in a chariot. <laughs> like that's like that's what I'm going. Like, no, why did Philip approach the chariot? because God told him to approach the chariot. His ear was awakened to the voice of God. And I I think that if we are in the months and years ahead to become more of a faithful witness to the good news that has transformed our lives, then we need to cultivate the discipline of listening to the voice of God. You know, there are people around you and God is at work in their life. You would never know because they don't look like the kind of person who you think God would be at work in their life. They don't look like the type of person that in your imagination would be spiritually thirsty. And yet there they are waiting for you to invite them to come to church. Waiting for you to invite them. How will you know? We have to cultivate a disciplined life of listening to the voice of God. Which means at least least this, you're like, well, what do you mean? Like, listen to the voice of God. And what does it mean? Like, you know, it says the Spirit told Philip or spoke to Philip. Like, how did the Spirit speak to Philip? You know, did he say, Philip, you know, go. And he heard, yes, Lord, you know. Or was it a prompting? Was it an impression? You know, we use all this language. I don't know. But you know like, you have experienced it before, haven't you? Almost everybody in here has. You have felt like God was telling you to do something. God was leading you. He was prompting you. and Yeah, you didn't hear some voice. I mean, you're not crazy. Like, but, but you, you just sensed it was God. And if God is indeed working in people's lives around us, then we need to spend more time asking him to show us. And to, try this. Try this this week. daily. At the beginning of your day, ask God, open up my eyes. Help me to see somebody in whose life you are working. And then invite them in. Let's become an invitational community. You know, people, like, they don't just convert like this. People need space and time to learn about Jesus and explore who Jesus is and learn in a community whether or not this thing is believable. And so we need to invite them into our community. We need to invite them into our homes. We need to invite them into Celebrate Recovery. Invite them into Grief Share. Invite them into MOPS. Invite them into Women's Bible Study. Invite people in. But pray and ask, God, is there somebody who you want me to see today? Somebody who needs your love today. Ask God to to speak to you and lead you. But we need God not only to wake up our ears to his voice, Philip listens and he responds to the voice of God. We also need God to open up our ears to the voice of people around us, to the voice of our neighbor, because he listened and responded to the voice of the eunuch he came and he heard what he was reading and he met him there. I loved the way the text describes it. It says, beginning there, he then told him the good news about Jesus. Now you're like, well, somebody was reading the Bible in an incredibly evangelistic text and they said, hey, what does this mean? Well, that would be an easy opportunity for me to share the gospel. But I don't have those kind of opportunities very often. No, you don't. But you know what you do have? You've got friends who are lonely and they need Community you can invite them into community. You have friends who are addicted and stuck in habits they can't break. You can invite them in to celebrate recovery. You have friends who are going through loss and pain. You can invite them into grief share. Like you can invite people who might be asking some questions. Maybe they're not sure about Christianity to come and experience who Jesus is in this community. But, but you need to listen to where people are at. And I think this is so key, don't you? I mean, when it comes to really engaging with people around us, we do have to listen for the ache. We have to notice what's happening in their lives, and we have to meet them where they're at. And oftentimes, you will find that where people are at, if you are listening, is where you have been at in your life, or maybe you're at even right now. And one of the best places to connect with people is just to open up to them your own vulnerability and say, like, I have been hurting and lost, and I'm starting to find some healing. I'm starting to find some hope. I'm starting to find some freedom in Jesus. And maybe, maybe this can be helpful for you. And invite them in. So let me just challenge you with this. like, Like, begin your day with prayer, and then second, Invite somebody in. You know, are we an invitational community? That's a good question to ask ourselves. And I know for me, it's easy to become numb and cold, like I said, you know, like I, I can be there just like you guys can. And it can get easy and like, well, yeah, we're kind of going through the motions, but, but can we become more of an invitational community that is hearing, you know, listening for, for where God is at work, responding to his promptings, impressions, inviting people in in ways that are vulnerable and humble and kind and gracious. And who knows what God can do? Now, one more thing, and we'll close with this. The band can come up. Band come up because it encourages everyone when you come up, because it just tells everyone, like, he's serious, he's gonna close. Listen, listen, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I do know that some of you, because I've had conversations with you, God brought you here maybe weeks ago, maybe months ago, and this has been a place where you have felt safe to explore your own faith journey. And you have not yet crossed over the line yet. And yet, you, you, you are feeling like called. You, you feel like, I, I need to surrender. I need to let go. Why not today? Why not surrender today? Why not entrust your life to Jesus today? And you know, you say, well, how do I do that? Like, listen, when it comes to the grace of God, all you need is need. And just voice that need to God. God, I need your grace and mercy in my life. I need you to free me. I want to, I receive your gift. I want to orient my life around you and surrender your life to Jesus. And then take the next step and explore baptism. You know, uh, the question that the eunuch asks is a question that you might ask, what is preventing you from getting baptized? Some of you, you have never gone public with your faith. Baptism is the, the tangible way that Jesus gave to us to go public with our faith where we say, I am ready to commit my life and this is how I'm publicly going to express my commitment to Jesus. And if you're here today and you're like, okay, I, you're kind of, you're back off, preacher, you know? <laughs> you wanna explore baptism? Listen, um, in the... Seats in front of you, there's little cards. If you would like to attend our next baptism class, we're gonna have a baptism class in the next uh, six or eight weeks. We'll get you a date really quickly. But if you want to explore baptism, go to the class and it's a good place for you to go like, is, this, is it my time yet? Am I ready to do this? I was baptized as an infant. Should I be rebaptized? Like, uh, I've not done this. I've kind of been afraid. What's it all about? Go to our baptism class and we would love to have you just learn more about that. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now as people who are in need of mercy and grace every day of our lives. We're we're in need of your grace and mercy because of the brokenness and the wounds and the patterns that are there in our life that we're aware of. And we need your grace and mercy for all the stuff we are unaware of. And I just ask, oh God, that you would wake us up afresh to your grace and mercy that you have to us. And would you enable us to be vehicles and instruments of your mercy into the lives of those around us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, it was the very embodiment of the wideness of your mercy. Amen.